we're going to do right now is we are going to get into God's Word. And uh, what I want to do is, before we jump in, I want to kind of preface all of this this morning by just simply saying that what we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark is really this picture of Jesus as being a king. And Jesus is a good king. And Mark wants us to understand that. He wants us to see that as Jesus moves forward in his ministry, he's a good king. And that he has a good kingdom. And that his kingdom is actually expanding. It's moving forward. And every time Jesus goes out and preaches and communicates or speaks or touches somebody or heal somebody or rescue somebody or pardon somebody from sin, uh, what Mark wants us to see that all of this is sort of equivalent to a kingdom broadening, expanding itself, growing and moving forth and changing and bringing transformation as it moves forth. And that's the picture that Mark wants us to see. And it's all initiated by Jesus, who's this good king. And so what we're going to be taking a look at here today is that when Jesus, his kingdom moves forward, not only is it well recepted uh, by many people, but at the same time, there will be those moments of opposition. And that's what we're going to be seeing today, that there are these moments of pushback from the religious leadership and other people that have their own type of kingdom, their own idea of a kingdom that they themselves perhaps are trying to promote or push forth. And that's typically where you'll find... Um, Push back on Jesus' kingdom, or will you find oftentimes conflict with other people? Maybe that's you. Maybe you've been someone in your life where you found conflict with God, right? You've been someone that people have talked with you about Jesus. You've had some sort of contact with other uh, Christianity, Christian people, and you found yourself sort of hesitant or reluctant or pushing back. Sometimes, oftentimes, it has to do with the fact you have two kingdoms colliding with each other, two kingdoms in conflict with each other. I just watched the tail end of Return of the King, Lord of the Rings, yesterday, and the final battle where they're having this big, massive battle, right? Basically between light and dark, good and evil, right? It's typically where they always end. But the point of the matter is, is you have two kingdoms colliding with each other. And that's what you'll see with Jesus. Jesus is a king, a good king. Jesus has a kingdom, a good kingdom. As Jesus moves his good kingdom forward, there will always be those points and those moments of conflict, and that's what we see. That the conflict that Jesus is going to find himself uh, being confronted by in the passage that we'll be reading here today has to do primarily with the religious leadership who had established some sort of sense of control and authority over the people, and they viewed Jesus as a threat to their kingdom. They view Jesus as a threat to what they were trying to push forward and promote. And so you see a lot of kickback from that. So what I want to do is I want to read the passage of Scripture that we'll be looking at here today. It's in chapter 2. It's going to pick up around verse 18. I'll read down to about verse 22. And uh, this will hopefully actually set the stage for the rest of the chapter and uh, kind of set us in a right direction where the rest of the gospel account is going. Uh, we won't look at all of this rest of the chapter this week, but it will set the stage for the rest of the chapter in the next few weeks to come. Another thing to note before I begin to read this is that it's important for us to realize that a lot of times when we read our Bibles, we read our Bibles in little chunks, maybe in chapter chunks or paragraph chunks or thought chunks. But the reality is is that the Bible, when it was originally written, was not broken down into chapters or broken down into verses. They did that years later to kind of help us find something. So if someone says, you know, turn your Bible to this particular verse, or someone quotes a verse, uh, most of us can have a, we have a hard time finding passages and verses with chapter and verse breaks. Can you imagine finding it with none? And that was the way most of the Bible was written. So oftentimes when they would sit down and read the Bible, they would just read the entire book in one setting. 
Uh, we typically don't do that that much here in our culture because you guys don't like five-hour services. It's usually why we don't do that. So we kind of break it down into smaller bite-sized pieces for us to sort of chew on it, to meditate on it, to think about it, to pray over it, to ask God to help us to be conformed into his image, and so on and so forth. So I, just, I say that because I want you to be aware of the fact, at least be cognizant of the fact, that the little section of Scripture that we're going to read actually is situated within the larger context of the storyline of Mark's telling of this story of Jesus, the great king, who's establishing a kingdom. So with that being said, I'm going to jump in about verse 18 and begin to read. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting. And people came and they said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. So obviously the issue is about fasting. Jesus then said to them, Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom was with them? Jesus is a classic rabbi. Rabbis were renowned for answering somebody, not by giving an answer, but by asking another question. So that's what Jesus does. He's like, I got a question for you. Here's what he does. He's like, Can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, and the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear is made, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins, but the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Um... I remember years ago, I, was, I started school, and I was kind of like in grade school, and I remember like the first few days of school, there was a substitute teacher. I'm not sure exactly why. The main teacher was not able to be there for some reason. And what had happened was the, a precedent was basically set for the brand new class to, to kind of understand rules and regulations under the leadership of the substitute teacher. When the real teacher came back, and again, like I said, I have no idea why she was gone, but when she finally came back a couple days later... All the students had begun to think, like, no, here's how we do things. Like, this is what the substitute teacher told us. This is how we do things in this class. And you're coming in and you're breaking everything. Like, this is not the way substitute teacher told us how to do things. And you're changing everything. You're breaking everything. In reality, the substitute teacher was just temporary. The whole job of the substitute teacher was just to sort of hold the class over until the main teacher was able to get back into the class and rule things, to take care of things, to teach us, to lead us. In a lot of ways, that's exactly the same type of situation that was going on in Israel. Jesus is the main teacher. He's the main leader who's come to take over, to, of which everything in the Old Testament was pointing to. Um, Israel pointed to Jesus. All of the prophets pointed to Jesus. That was the whole idea, the whole point of it. Now, there were to be temporary teachers set in place and temporary rules, temporary restrictions, temporary... Uh, holidays, things of that nature, which were to be set in motion, which were just to be temporary. Their whole point, whole job, was to merely point forward to the day when Jesus would come. That's basically what we see that was going on. What Mark wants us to understand is that that day has finally arrived, of which these things are no longer needed, of which Jesus has finally come on the scene, of which every other thing that has gone before has pointed to has finally come. Give me an example. There's been times I've been on trips. Whenever I go on a trip, I either bring photos of my family or bring photos you know, on my iPhone or something like that that I can look at and remember my family. I don't kiss those photos. I don't hug those photos. I don't have any type of intimate relationship with those photos 
those photos point me to my wife. Now, if I get off the plane, there's my wife. I'm not going to revert to the photo. I'm going to hug my wife. She's there. I love my wife. The photo just reminds me of my wife. What the whole Bible is basically telling us is that everything that took place in the Old Testament, from Adam being commissioned by God to rule and lead, to Abraham being commissioned by God to start a nation, to Israel being commissioned by God to be God's people, all of these things by way of all of the prophets, all of that had gone before, was intended to point forth to Jesus. That day has finally come. Jesus has arrived. So what is going on now is that you have the religious leaders that are looking at Jesus. They're confused because in their minds they're thinking Jesus should be doing something. If he's a religious leader, if he's a teacher, there's certain things that he and his disciples or followers should actually be doing, but they're not doing. In this case, it has to do with fasting. Now, what you need to understand is that in a lot of ways, the religious, religious leaders had established all sorts of rules and regulations around sort of the main corpus of God's word, the Torah. So if you can think of it this way, there is the main core of God's word. We call that the Torah. Jesus never violated the Torah, never broke the Torah. In fact, Jesus went on to say, I've come to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. That's basically equivalent to saying, you know, I've come and every I will be dotted, every T will be crossed. I will not in any way abrogate or move away from or break anything in God's law. That's what Jesus is saying. He never did. He never broke God's law. He always honored God's law. But what happened was there were laws that were made about those laws. Those laws that were made about the laws were basically formulated by religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, things of this nature. And what had happened was they had all these laws about the laws of God that became sort of elevated to the same level as keeping God's law. I'll give you an example. Mark will actually give us the example. We'll read this more next week, but I'll just kind of give you a little bit of a trailer about it until next week. For example, the Sabbath. The Sabbath was something that God had instituted. He said, six days I worked, seventh day I rested. God said in the same way, work hard, seventh day rest. Enjoy me. Enjoy your family. Have a good meal. Go for a long walk. Enjoy creation, recreation, Enjoy life on that final day, the seventh day. But what had happened was, the religious leaders started asking questions like, what does it mean to not work? Like, what constitutes work? What doesn't constitute work? All right? Um, If on a day off, mom, let's say you have a big family of 20, right? Got a lot of kids, uh, which probably was not super uncommon. but, But the reality is, for that mom, is Sabbath cooking for 20 kids a day off? Maybe, maybe not. It's kind of funny because probably some of the Jewish leaders back in the day were like, that's a day off, right? And we said so. Like, who said so? We said so. And the point of the matter is, is that they started kind of fine-tooth combing through what is a day off? What does it constitute to rest? And so they would start saying things like this, you know, you, you can't walk a certain distance. If you walk beyond a certain distance, that's working. If you walk through a grain field and you, you know, happen to pick up grain in your hands and you start looking at it and you go like this with it and you separate the wheat from the chaff, that's equivalent to harvesting. And if you do harvesting, that's work. So you can't even eat grain that you pick on a field uh, on a Sabbath because that constitutes work. If some guy is sick, all right, and it's not like a deathly sickness or illness, um, you can't heal that guy on the Sabbath. You'll see moments of that throughout the 
throughout the, uh, the Gospel of Mark where Jesus will do things like that. He'll heal a guy on the Sabbath. He'll get in trouble because in their mind they're like, you can't heal a guy on the Sabbath. You know, it's those types of things. So Jesus never broke God's law, but he was always willing to break the laws about the laws. Does that make sense? One of the laws about the laws that the religious leaders also had established was one about fasting. Now, in the Old Testament Torah, there was only one place in the entire Old Testament that God basically established an obligation to fast. On the day of Yom Kippur. It was a high holy day where you would remember your sins. You would offer a sacrifice for your sins. And the high priest would offer a sacrifice for the nation's sins. And it was a day that basically for the most part, uh, you were to fast because fasting was always synonymous with uh, heaviness or feeling of uh, misery, a feeling bad, where you would want to feel bad for your sins. You would want to feel bad for the offenses that you committed against each other and against God. And so rather than celebration, having a big party, you would actually fast. You would fast from food, you would fast from recreation, and that you would focus on your sin and focus upon your offense and focus upon God who forgives your offense and your sin. That was only one day out of the entire year. Now what had happened was, other religious leaders came along and says, well, we want to fast twice a week. And they did. And what happened was this sort of became kind of a, a level or a benchmark or a threshold for spiritual, spirituality. So if you were one of those guys that was fasting twice a week, you kind of look at other people that weren't fasting twice a week, or maybe they were just fasting once a year, and you would sort of look at them and think, I'm a little bit better than them. I'm very close to God. If fasting once a year is what God expects, I fast, I don't know, twice a week. So God, if he accepts people who fast once a year, he will certainly accept me because I fast twice a week. I'm very holy. I'm very sacred. I'm a holy person. And what happened was this became sort of a benchmark in which a criteria was established where they would begin to judge and criticize other people that weren't living like that. So these religious leaders would come to Jesus and they would basically ask him, our disciples fast. John the Baptist's disciples fast. Why are your disciples don't fast? Another thing that might also be going on here as well, after the children of Israel came out of a region called Babylon, at one point they were sold off into slavery into Babylon. And what had happened was, prior to them being taken away into Babylon, Babylonian captivity, their temple was destroyed. And so again, these religious leaders later on came along and says, we are going to make an, an, an obligation for you to fast once a year to remember the destruction of the temple. So we don't know if the fasting that the religious leaders were questioning Jesus about had to do with Yom Kippur, probably not, or had to do with the fasting for the temple, or had to do with fasting just twice a week out of religious observance or duty. Whatever the case was, they were deeply offended and frustrated and scandalized by the fact that Jesus and his disciples, rather than fasting, are feasting, just like what most of you guys did on Thursday. You feasted a lot. You're still wearing elastic waistbands since then. The point of the matter is this, is that Jesus was basically coming and saying that I've, here, I'm, I'm a, I've arrived. The culmination of the Old Testament has pointed to me. My disciples are with me. They're following me, and they're joyful. The religious leaders are full of misery. They're fasting. They're not happy. They're frustrated, and they're looking at Jesus and his disciples who are full of joy, and they're deeply frustrated by this. Now, what Jesus is going to begin to say 
I think, at least three things. He's going to point out to us that this kingdom that Jesus came announcing, because remember, he's a king. He comes announcing his kingdom. And the kingdom that Jesus comes announcing is at least three things that he's going to point out. The first thing I think I want to take a look at is that this kingdom has to do with life, not legalism. It has to do with life, not legalism. This is the main point I'm going to spend the majority of my time on, and I want to really help us understand it because it kind of occupies the main bulk of the passage that Jesus is going to talk about. It has to do with life, not legalism. Now, what that means is that Jesus is going to give two parables in the story that we just read. The two parables that Jesus gives, a parable is a story. One has to do with a new patch on an old garment. Another one has to do with new wine in old wineskins. All right? Both of which, if you lived in that day, you'd realize nobody does that. In fact, Jesus himself says nobody does that. Nobody puts a new patch on an old garment. Because if you wash the old garment with a new patch on it that's not shrunk, it'll tear the, uh, the material apart. Or if you put new wine in old wineskins, the fermentation process would continue to go on, and it would cause the old wineskins that are prone to crack to break. And you would lose the wine, and you would also lose the wineskin. Everything would be a bust. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell these two parables. Here's, there's a lot of different ways in which you can try to understand these. What I want to try to do is do my best to try to help us to understand it. All right, so what I think Jesus is trying to drive at here is that the kingdom that he comes announcing has to do with life. Not legalistic standards. Now, in order to understand what I just said requires discernment. You've got to have some level of discernment or wisdom. You've got to think through these things. In other words, you don't just slip into it. You have to think through these things. You have to actually process what's most important. What's God after? What's the heart of God? So, for example, Jesus is going to chide the religious leaders because in their mind... Uh, Later on in the chapter, chapter 2, when Jesus is going through a grain field with his disciples, his disciples actually do what's forbidden on the Sabbath. They take pieces of grain, they start harvesting them in in their hand, and then they start eating it. And the religious leaders look at that and they're like, Jesus, your disciples are working. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Jesus is like, they're not working, they're eating. There's a difference. They're enjoying the Sabbath while eating grain that God created. There's a difference. They're eating grain because they're hungry. In order to survive, to live, have life, you've got to eat. Does that make sense? But the religious leaders couldn't get past the fact that a law was broken. A legalistic standard was abrogated or walked around, and they were freaking out over the fact that somehow Jesus and his disciples were not abiding by the laws established, attached to, appended to the laws. All right? They just couldn't see it. In Jesus' mind, he's like, look, what's more important is life. Let me give an example. Laws, this just makes sense even in the the system that we live in. Laws are intended to save life, right? That's what a law is for, save life. But what happens when everything becomes focused upon upholding a law when life becomes threatened? you got a problem, right? Something has gone awry. So I'll give you an example in the Bible. If you have somebody that just focuses on discernment, like we've got to get the text right. We've got to make sure that we understand the Bible clearly. We've got to live according to the exact standards of the Bible. And we are, we've got to be called back to that time and time again. But what happens is if that person or people can't enjoy the life of what God's doing because all they focused on is 
discernment or focused on wisdom, getting the passage right, let alone not seeing and enjoying the good things that God's doing in people's lives, what's happened? They've shifted. They have not carried on with the gospel focus. In Jesus' mind, what's preeminent, what's most upright, most important is life. The laws are meant to support life. The Sabbath was intended to support life. Not people live for the Sabbath. Fasting was intended as, as a means of honoring God in the moment of great fasting. And these people are living. Jesus wants us to understand that what's most important is life, not the legalistic standards. So he does this by basically pointing out two different little parables. The first of which is in verse 21. We're going to go, go a little bit backwards here in the text. So the first one he talks about is about a new patch and an old garment. Mark 2, 21 says this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new and the old uh, are worse, make a worse tear. Traditionally, some of you probably have heard that this passage has been sort of interpreted by Jesus comes along, he's the new patch in some ways. He's the new patch uh, that's bringing along new concepts, new ideas about God, and therefore it's not working. Jesus and the old system, which is equivalent to the old uh, garment, when they uh, kind of go hand in hand together, they tear apart. They rip apart. It's not functioning. It's not working. And that same idea so kind of uh, carries over into the next passage where Jesus is the new, new wine and the uh, old guys are kind of the old wine and whatnot, old wineskins and so on and so forth. And that may be the case. That may very well be a likely interpretation of it. There's a lot of Bible uh, translators and teachers and professors and leaders that believe it's that there's another way to look at this as well and i'm going to throw this out here as well because i think it's plausible i'm just going to throw it out for you to kind of chew on and think about uh, at the end of the day what i really want to try to get at is what i think really where jesus is trying to head with all this the other way of looking at this is actually jesus is not new in the sense of totally disconnected from the old but that jesus actually is in continuity with the old in other words jesus hasn't come along and started a new religion He's in continuation with the old. Not the old section that's been the past hundred years or so with the, Jude- with, uh, with the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. But Jesus is in continuity with the old, meaning Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Adam, all of Israel. That Jesus is in a continual state. There is a continual consistency that began from the beginning that leads all the way down to Jesus. That the storyline, the narrative is that Jesus is actually coming in perfect sync with the history of the people of Israel before. But what's happened in Jesus' day, where these religious leaders came in, and they started something new. They've established new teachings, new doctrines, new ideas, new laws, new regulations, new rules that God never intended. And they're tearing the work of God apart from the old. They're bringing oppression. They're bringing destruction. They're not helping the system. They're not helping people. They're not liberating souls. They're actually destroying people and oppressing people. And Jesus is saying, perhaps in this interpretation, that Jesus is saying is that these people, the religious leaders, are bringing something new. And it's being destructive to the old. It's destroying the old. Because in Luke's account, talking about the wine, Jesus is going to also say that old wine... It's actually the best wine. So if Jesus is saying, I'm the new guy, come on the scene, and I'm completely going to change everything up, then, 
you know, again, I think there's some problems with that. There's problems either way you want to look at it. It's a, it's a difficult passage to interpret. So I throw them both out to you to just kind of chew on and think about. But here's my point. The real issue that Jesus, Jesus is trying to convey and communicate here, I think, is that whether it's an old patch or a new patch or old wine and new wine, they don't mix. There's a, there's, there's a, there's a tear that's going to happen. Something will break. Something will be destroyed. Whether it's the teachings, the new teaching of the religious leaders that are actually destroying the old work of God that had begun in the very beginning, or it's Jesus who's sort of reintroducing the new work that God had begun from the very beginning that had been sort of hijacked by these religious leaders. Whatever the case is, depends upon where you want to put the decimal point. The point of the matter is this, is that there is going to be major issue, major problem. Wine will be spilled. Tears will be had. Something will break. Something will be catastrophic through whatever the case may be. And that's what I think Jesus is trying to say. But I think, honestly, where Jesus is really trying to establish, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is in direct continual continuation with the storyline that began ultimately in the Old Testament. I'll give you a very, very brief example of this. In the beginning, God started all things, and God created Adam. God commissioned Adam. God called Adam, Adam. We're going to make a covenant with you. And what you will do is you will live according to us. You will love us. You will abide by us. Be in obedience to us. And you'll have access to the land, to the garden. It's a paradise. All of it belongs to you. Walk in our ways. What happened? Did Adam do it? Not so much. He sinned. Adam basically became a usurper. He usurped his authority over God's and basically said, I'll be God. I don't want to be in relation with God, I want to be God myself. I don't want to work in cooperation with God. I want to make, you know, unilateral decisions myself. So what God does, years later, God finds another man by the name of Abraham, calls Abraham, you know, Father Abraham. He says, Abraham, basically the same thing. I want to make covenant with you, and you'll be a nation. You'll start a nation for, before me, and I will bless you. Walk in my ways, honor me, love me, serve me. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham, had good days. Abraham had bad days. Abraham was a sinner, just like us. Abraham sinned. He did not always keep God's uh, law. He did not always keep God's covenant. Later, God would call Israel. This time, not just a human being, or in, but a grouping of human beings called a nation. God calls them, and he says, I want to make a covenant with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will give you my law on Mount Sinai. God gave them the, the Torah. And Israel, for the next several hundred years, from around Joshua on through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, uh, so on and so forth, Judges, all of these Old Testament books, they had good days, good moments, good times, good seasons where they obeyed God, but the overwhelming amount of their life was in rebellion against God. They were usurpers. They did just what Abraham did. He usurped God's authority from time to time, and they did exactly what Adam did. He usurped God's authority. But what happens is God made this promise. I will send one. He will come. Rather than usurping my authority, he will submit to my authority all the time. Rather than creating his own laws, he will submit to my laws. And he will live. And that's what Jesus comes on the scene saying, I'm that guy. I won't usurp God's authority. I won't rebel against God. Jesus comes on the scene and he actually plays out the roles of Israel. So the first thing Mark tells us that Jesus does. He goes out in the wilderness. For how long? 40 days. Why? He's reenacting Israel's journey through the wilderness. 
for 40 years. Israel's journey through the wilderness for 40 years was full of rebellion. Jesus' journey through the wilderness for 40 days was full of obedience. Immediately Jesus comes out and he calls how many disciples? How many apostles? Twelve. Why? Because there were 12 tribes in Israel. Jesus literally is saying, I'm Israel. I'm the new Israel. I will do for Israel what Israel could not do for themselves. I will do for Abraham what Abraham was powerless to do for himself. And I will do for Adam what Adam failed to do for himself. Jesus is saying that he's this continual continuation of what started in the Old Testament with creation all the way down through. And here's what Paul tells us in the New Testament. That in this Jesus, in this king, because he was always obedient to everything that God asked him to do, comes life and blessing. And therefore Paul's going to say, if you're in this Christ, if you're in Jesus, comes life and blessing. It all comes through this Jesus. So, you can take whatever type of interpretation you want in that particular passage, but I think the main point that Jesus is trying to communicate and convey via this uh, particular idea, through this little parable, is that regardless, there's going to be a tear. There's going to be something that's broken, some sort of wine is going to be spilled something of value will be wasted or destroyed or apparently wasted so that's the first thing he wants us to see that it is about life not about legalism second thing that he wants us to understand is that it's about joy not misery verse 19 and moving backwards jesus says this and then jesus said to them can a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them as long as they have the bridegroom with them they cannot fast the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day now the second thing i think jesus wants us to understand is that his kingdom is actually about joy it's one of the reasons why i think jesus actually uses the idiom or the metaphor of a wedding feast wedding feasts in our day are very similar to wedding feasts 2000 years ago they're moments of great joy you go to a wedding feast not wearing black and having bad nasty music that's oppressive you go to a wedding feast, and you eat, and you dance, and you laugh, and you have joy, and you wear your best clothes, and you have a great time. You have a lot of good moments, and some of the best memories of my life are good weddings I've been to, where the food's really good, and the music's really good. But the point that I would make is this, is that weddings are always synonymous with joy. It's one of the reasons why the Old Testament, God says, there will come a day when all things will be restored, and it will be like a big wedding feast. And all my people, all the church, will actually be the bride. They will be the honored guests. They will be the ones that will be brought to the table, and they will have deep joy. The point that I would make is this. Jesus wants us to understand that at the very root of the foundation, a rudimentary level of the Christian faith, or the, the kingdom of God, is joy. This doesn't mean that there's going to be moments of difficulty and hardship and of misery. There will be. Just like Jesus said. This is one of the reasons why Jesus said here, so, so right now, my disciples are not fasting, they're feasting. Why? Because I'm here. They're doing what just comes natural when Jesus is around. They're having great joy. But Jesus then says, there will come a time when they will fast. What does Jesus mean by that? Most scholars believe that what Jesus means by that is that he says, I think that there's going to come a day, I'm going to die. In a few short months, Jesus would die, and his disciples would mourn. His disciples would be full of misery. And in those moments, in that time, there would be great, deep anguish in the hearts of all the disciples. But 
Joy would come. Joy would follow. So my point that I would make is this, is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus preaches, the kingdom message that Jesus announces is one that brings us into joy. That doesn't mean that we will always be joyful. That doesn't mean that we should fake joy. That, to me, is one of the worst things that Christians can sometimes do is fake joy. Don't fake joy. It's okay. If you're going through a hard time, it's okay if life is rough. You can admit that. That's fine. If you feel like you're going to be judged by that, then shame on the people that would judge you for that. The point of the matter is, is that at the foundational level of the Christian walk is joy. Think of it this way. One day, when God establishes his final kingdom, brings back, Jesus comes back here, establishes the earth upon in, in his completely beautiful throne, and the earth is restored to what it should be, no one will fast. We will feast. There will be no need for fasting ever again. There will be no need for somehow having to make some sort of allowance for the misery in our life, because there will be no misery. All of our tears will be wiped away. All of our sorrow will be transformed into joy. So I'm just simply saying this, is that the fact that we have joy now is simply a foretaste. It's an appetizer that comes off of the banquet of what's to come. Does that make sense? So that's what Jesus wants us to understand, that his kingdom has to do with joy. The final thing I want you to notice, I think Jesus wants us to understand, is that his kingdom is also about himself, not the temple. His kingdom has to do with himself, not the temple. I want to develop this very quickly and I'm done. One of the things that Jesus is going to say that Mark is going to refer us to time and time again is that Jesus will be pointing his followers back to himself. He does that in this text. Here's what he says as he refers to himself in verse 19. He says, And Jesus said to him, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The point of the matter is this, is that Jesus wants him to understand is that he's the bridegroom and he's with his people. And while his people are with him, the bridegroom, they're celebrating. Now, if you were a first century Jew, especially a religious leader, and you heard Jesus say, I'm the bridegroom, that would be scandalous. Here's why. In the Old Testament, the concept of God was always that of being a bridegroom. A couple examples of that would be, for uh, instance, Hosea chapter 2, verse 16. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5 are references of which God refers to himself as being their husband. God is Israel's bridegroom. So when Jesus comes along and says, I'm their bridegroom, what he's actually doing is he's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm the everlasting God. I'm here. That's very scandalous, very offensive to ears that are deeply devoted to a religious system. Now, tagged onto that is Jesus' announcement, I think, in some other ways, even though he never really comes straight out and says this, I think there's no doubt this is part of Jesus' whole theme, his whole message that's interwoven throughout the other gospel accounts, that the new life, the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is about himself, not the temple. Here's what I mean. There's going to be occasions when Jesus is going to say, this temple will be destroyed in three days, and I'll raise it up. He's obviously referring to his body, but he's also kind of playing around with the other people. Now, did Jesus honor the temple? Absolutely he honored it. He went to the temple, and he worshiped. He prayed there at the temple. Jesus even rebukes the people, said, you guys have turned this temple into a, what should be a place of prayer. You guys have turned it into a den of thieves. So, yes, Jesus actually stood up for the temple. But what Jesus is saying and what the gospel accounters, uh, writers are accounting for is that the temple was only temporary. It was the substitute teacher. It wasn't intended to be forever. For example, we just read a couple weeks ago, Jesus is approached by a guy 
who's paralyzed. And he says, Jesus, if you will, you can make me whole. You can clean me. And what does Jesus do? He heals him. And he cleanses him. Now, Jesus actually first says, I'll forgive you of your sin. Now, if you were a first century person living in first century Judaism, and you wanted to have your sins forgiven, you wouldn't go to some itinerant preacher on the seashores of Galilee. It's not what you did. You would go find a priest who would then in turn find a sacrifice, who would then in turn take you to the temple, and then you would go through this ritual ceremony to have your sins forgiven. But what does Jesus do? On the seashores of Galilee, I forgive your sins. That's scandalous. Unless you actually have the power to forgive sins, unless you're actually saying in a very inadvertent way, you don't need the temple, you need me. And then what Jesus is very clearly trying to identify and say that this whole kingdom, this whole kingdom is not about the temple. It's not about the substitute teacher. It's about the king. And I'm here. All right. So why did the scribes and Pharisees get so angry? All right. They built, first century, their entire religious world system on the temple. Um, let's put it this way. It's what paid their bills. So if someone comes along and says, the temple is dated. There's an expiration date on it. It's coming to an end. Um, and those of you that have ears to hear, those of you that have eyes to see right now, you can jump off that ship and jump onto the ship that's actually going to save you and rescue you. And that's me. I'm here. The bridegroom is here. Trust me. Love me. Serve me. Come to me. I'll forgive you, wash you, cleanse you, give you joy in life. You come to me and it will be fine. The religious leader is like, no, we've got to cling to the temple. That's our source of livelihood. That's our source of income. That's our source of power. If we have the temple, we have power. If we have the temple, we have our income. If we have the temple, we have our Rolls Royces that we can drive around in, our jets that we can fly around. We have everything because the temple is to us equivalent of our power. But Jesus says, I'm here. You don't need the temple anymore. Jesus' kingdom threatened their kingdom. But see, here's the final thoughts. Because what Jesus wants us to understand, what Mark wants us to hear, is that this whole kingdom that Jesus comes announcing is about life, not legalism. It's about joy, not misery. It's about Jesus, not some sort of temple religious system. But the way that Jesus is going to now go about in securing our life is that this king would lay his life down. The way that this king would somehow take from us our misery and give to us his joy is that he would take our misery upon himself and he would be bruised and afflicted and oppressed for us so that we who are full of misery can be given joy. This king is different than any other king. Other kings come and they spill blood. This king comes and he says, I will spill my blood. Other kings come and they take lives. This king comes and says, I will die. I will lay my life down so that you who live in death can have life. That's what this king's all about. This is what makes Jesus so good. This is why we love this king. Because he's a good king. He's an honorable king. He's a just king. He's the only king that we've ever seen that actually comes to people that are broken, that are marginalized, that are hurting, that are built upon lives of misery. And he actually gives them a name. He gives them dignity. He gives them value and respect by laying his life down. That's what this king does. This is why we love Jesus. 
we're going to finish now, and we're going to respond to Jesus. And the way that we respond is we sing. We worship him. Singing is a natural response. We do it all the time. Most songs, if you listen to them on the radio or on your iPod, whatever, iTunes, they're either songs of complete misery and grief because somebody broke up with somebody. Or they're songs of rejoicing because someone's in love. It's the same that's true for a Christian walk. There's moments where we have moments of misery and hardship and grief. But the reality is, is that we have the ability to sing about songs of great joy because we have one who became miserable for us so that we who are miserable can find joy. We have one who live in death, who took our death so that we who live in death can be given life. We have a good king. So we'll sing to this king. We'll remember this king by partaking of communion. That literally communion speaks to us that Jesus' body was like that cloth that was torn. Jesus' blood was like the wine that was spilled. And we'll remember him. We'll sing. We'll confess sin. And we'll worship him because he's a good God. I invite you into that. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I invite you into a place of knowing who Jesus is. He's a good king. He's not what you perhaps have thought embodied around religion. He's not a religious figure. He's not someone that's come to try to establish a new religion. He's actually come to destroy religion, to bring about a relationship. And it's come at a great cost upon himself. This is why sin is serious. Because sin really amounts to our own autonomy, our own usurping ways, whereby we say, I want my kingdom come, not your kingdom come. And we come into conflict. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you're in conflict with God's kingdom. But I encourage you to consider, to think, I invite you to surrender. And what you'll find is that this king is very eager to wash, cleanse, purify, remove your defilement, and give you life. And to give you a new name. And to call you into something beautiful. That's what this king's like. I told you already I was watching Lord of the Rings earlier. So the little picture, the little section where Gollum has this sort of epiphany moment where he's arguing with himself. Maybe some of you remember that. He's arguing with himself, and then all of a sudden he commands his evil self to stop doing what he's doing. All of a sudden he says, you know, I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> and he's jumping around, elated, excited, and immediately goes out and finds a rabbit and kills it and gives it to his good friend Frodo. That, to me, is a picture of what the gospel does. Not that you go out and kill animals and give them to your friends. But that what happens is when the gospel sets you free, you're free. You're free to give. You're free to serve. You're free to love. You're free to give out of what God has allowed you to give. That's the life that Jesus gives. It's a, life of, it's a, it's a call to life. It's a call to joy. It's a call to Jesus. This is why we have to keep Jesus central in all of this, lest we become religious. Our default mode is to slip into religion. Our default mode is to go back to rules and regulations. But the gospel is constantly calling us to go back to Jesus, to look at who Jesus is, to look at what Jesus did for us. So I'm going to pray and we'll sing. Jesus, thank you for the cross. We want to worship you now. We want to lift up to you right now our praise and our thanksgiving. So God, receive our worship. I pray for those here that might not be Christians and ask God that you would help them to confess sin, to lay that down trust you.